Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope Stackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. In this episode of the Cato Podcast, we are going to discuss Chapter 5 of Sound Doctrine, titled Tactical Principles. And for this particular episode, I've asked a couple folks to join me. So the first person I'd like to introduce is Bobby. He is our Region 9 uh, representative for Cato. He's got about 28 years on the job. And if you know uh, Bobby, you can tell. He's currently a supervisor of his collateral team. He works for an agency in Southern California, about 240 sworn there. And his uh, collateral team's pretty busy. They have 31 members. I've also asked uh, frequent podcast guest and Cato board member, Chris Jenny. Uh, Chris and Bobby are both graduates of our strategic leadership program, class two. And then I've asked board member, SLP one graduate, team leader, instructor, all around general shenanigans guy, uh, Kenny Brayton to join me as well. Kenny and I are currently down in uh, San Diego teaching uh, SWAT team leader and commander. And we asked these guys to join us via the intranets, as Chris likes to say, or the interwebs, right? So that we can discuss chapter five. So a couple thanks for things. having us. Yeah, thanks for being here, fellas. Thanks, Marcus. Chapter five starts off with tactical principles and a quote, which uh, Bobby reminded me is worth discussing. So we're going to start with a quote on chapter five. Science is nothing but trained and organized common sense. Thomas Huxley. Science is nothing but trained and organized common sense. Remember, this book is about tactical science. So what's your takeaway from that quote, everybody? Well, I, I guess I can start. Uh, again, thanks for having us, uh, Marcus. Appreciate it. I think the, the basic common sense part of that statement is probably the, the biggest thing we could take away um, from the entire chapter, really, is just breaking down each individual incident um, and using common sense to solve the problem. Uh, I think oftentimes we find ourselves uh, arriving at events where watch commanders or incident commanders have started to accumulate too many problems uh, by by trying to solve problems without using common sense. And, and thus we find ourselves um, trying to roll back a little bit um, and simplify the problem uh, and make it a little bit easier to solve in the long run. I think uh, for me, it's it's kind of the whole principles behind tax science in and of itself, right? Everything that we talk when we teach this, um, we're, t- we're teaching the people that we're talking to that they're probably pretty good at understanding the how. We're trying to teach them 
how to explain the why on what they do. And I think that kind of ties in because most of the people that we teach this to, we tell them, you're probably already doing this. You just don't know how to explain what you're doing, right? So the common sense part is what they've already been trained, what they implement. Um, the science part is organizing that thoughts, right? That's the whole principle behind tech science, organizing, um, having actually a roadmap for critical incident response, understanding these principles. And instead of just taking a shot in the dark, um, you actually have an organized response to these because you understand the principles behind the common sense that you've probably been doing pretty well uh, for a long time, right? To get to this point. So, yeah, the, the principles we're going to talk about have been established over, you know, uh, thousands of years of warfare. And they were only extracted, a, you know, 100 or so years ago and then taught in the military colleges. But uh, once you start really looking into it, um, they're present, they're around, we just don't recognize them in the terms that we're going to describe them in. And this chapter covers what's probably really the most uh, famous kind of part of that science called the principles of war. So before we discuss each principles, I'd just like to read the opening paragraph, which nobody you know wants me to read books on tape. There's people with way better voices and ability than me. But to kind of set the tone for each principle of war we're going to discuss. And the goal here is to go over the nine principles of war, which is what chapter five is about, and give you some examples. It is well established that there are fundamental truths and doctrines upon which to base tactical decisions. The very existence of such renowned institutions of military science as Westmont, Naples, and Sandhurst is predicated on the body of knowledge. Since the art of war, written approximately 2,500 years ago, mankind has been seeking to discover understand and apply intrinsic tactical principles to achieve decisive and favorable resolutions in tactical operations. Perhaps the best known of all tactical precepts are nine tenets called the principles of war. The United States Army first published its discussion of these principles in 1921, but they were taken from the works of the British Major General J.F.C. Fuller, who originally published them in 1912. What's the uh, significance of those uh, time frames? So he actually published them in 1912. Nobody really cared that much until 1921. World War uh, World War I established uh, some of the validity of Fuller's work there. When, once they looked back and started to deconstruct uh, the actions of the Germans, they recognized the uh, influence that uh, Clausewitz and the Prussians had on their doctrine and strategy. Yeah, great point. So I want to read this last part, and then we'll go into the examples and, and how we can actually apply these in tactical situations. But I can't really think of a better way to say this, and I'm not really good enough for presenter to, to efficiently say this better than how Sid wrote it. Fuller's work sets forth in concise terms nine interacting and related factors that have stood the test of analysis, experimentation, and practice. So I want you to think about that analysis, experimentation, and practice. What do we call a theory that we apply, analyze, experiment, and practice and can be replicated? That's science, right? So he, he's talking about time tested, proven, repeatable results. Each principle is present to a greater or lesser degree in every tactical operation. The fact that a commander may neglect or even ignore them makes them no less important. It merely affects the final outcome. 
These nine principles play a key role in the development of a tactical plan throughout the world and have revolutionized the way in which personnel and equipment are utilized and deployed. So in this particular case, and in most Cato classes, we talk about them in the same order that's in the book, but that's not necessarily the order of importance. It's very contextual. So yes, anybody, any other, uh, any other comments on that? Kenny says no. Chris, you got to look on your face like you got something you need to say. Yeah, I'll just say that if uh, this is the first time that our listeners are hearing this and they Google the term, uh, they're going to find other authors that have, uh, you know, presented different theories on why uh, these nine principles don't necessarily apply anymore. Um, there's some pretty good books that put together some pretty compelling um, arguments for maybe a, a tenth principle or eliminating one of the existing nine principles, largely based on technology. But the main issue with trying to eliminate or change the nine principles uh, at this point is there's just not a body of history to reference or support that change at this point. And especially for us in law enforcement, we're not looking at, you know, combat on the theater scale. These are more for, you know, small uh, adversarial interactions up to this, you know, potentially protests. And the, the nine principles that we're going to discuss still apply. Yeah, I think I would agree with that as well. It's it's taking these principles because you can really apply them to from the smallest incident uh, that we deal with in law enforcement to to the largest being a, a large scale public disorder uh, incident. Uh, but down to, you know, your basic uh, foot pursuit um, and containment and, and yard to yard search for a suspect that you're going to do in patrol. So let's jump right into it here. So the first principle is maneuver. I just want to share the definition of maneuver because there's there's a key point here. Whenever I get to share this with uh, different groups, I ask them to circle the last part of the definition because it's so uh, critical, especially when we get to economy and mass. There's They're all interrelated. Don't forget that, right? So maneuver is defined as the movement of troops and equipment to gain an advantage. So if you're in charge, whether you're a patrol officer, deputy, a sergeant, a lieutenant, a commander, a small event with two people or three people, eight people, 50 people, 100 people, the principle of maneuver is the same. We do not move our people or equipment unless it's to gain an advantage over the adversary. And we're talking about adversarial events. Crises can be mechanical they can be natural but in this case we're you know we're talking about uh things we derive from adversarial conflicts principles of war so when you think about maneuvering we only move our people to gain an advantage over the bad guy and and it's just a paragraph of what this means right and one of the things that sid mentions is that the impact of the principle of maneuver on any plan can hardly be exaggerated. It has two interrelated dimensions, flexibility and mobility. Flexibility describes the need for versatility and pliancy in thought and in plans and provides the ability to react to unforeseen circumstances. Mobility then is necessary to enable prompt actions and reactions. This principle is a key contributor to sustaining the initiative which is the implied objective of all adversarial events. 
We need to exploit for success, preserve freedom of action, and reduce vulnerability. So I want you to think about this like protest response. There's major challenges when a protest becomes a riot. So we we respond to protest because we want to monitor what we believe is a legal constitutional right to protest. And we want to make sure that no one interferes with that right. But once it becomes a riot, we have to determine who the people are that are committing crimes versus who the people are ex, you know, exercising their constitutional rights. But once that riot happens, it's very difficult for us to respond and be mobile enough to react in an efficient manner to address those people that are actually committing crimes. So when I think about mobility, it always reminds me of like that lag time and how can I make decisions quicker, push decision-making down? How can I build a structure where I can be more flexible in my response? And then I remember a time where a couple different incidents where I had commanders that would move us around because they didn't know what else to do. And so we weren't moving to gain a maneuvering to gain an advantage. We're just maneuvering because we didn't know what else to do. Any other uh, examples or uh, practical applications on that? Go ahead, Bobby. I say I can, I can use uh, yesterday's event in Glendale. Uh, I actually got a chance to speak uh, with a couple of the uh, incident commanders uh, from that incident yesterday and how quickly uh, an incident can turn from what is seemingly a, a, a calm and, and peaceful protest um, into a single punch being thrown. And, and now it's become a, a full-scale riot for um, lack of a better term, uh, so civil unrest, I guess, and how quickly they ran out of, of, of personnel. Uh, but being able to, to maneuver the bodies they had started to become an issue uh, and they ended up calling for mutual aid because they ran out of resources very quickly. Uh, and we'll, and we can talk about that also uh, as we move through the principles. Uh, but just being able to maneuver folks from where they they were currently because they had people caught right in the middle uh, to get them into some safe space in order to effectively address the problem. So real quick, um, you know, we have a little bit of insider information on that particular event. But what we're talking about is a protest that broke out in Glendale, California on June 6, 2023, that resulted in a call for mutual aid. And without going too rapidly into the details, uh, how big, how big Bobby was this crowd that, uh, and, or how big did it get? Just to give I, a I scale of an idea of what you're referring to. A little over a hundred uh, people from, from both sides. So it doesn't take much to overwhelm, you know, what's basically a meeting that turned quickly into a protest and then rapidly devolved into a, a riot. And yes. Being able to maneuver through that. And, and uh, uh, we talk a little bit about obstacles or terrain and a, and a crowd is absolutely terrain and obstacles that we have to, you know, move around. Maneuver also applies uh, not just to space, but to time. And we can maneuver in time by changing the tempo. It's obviously one of the themes that's uh, been pretty common with the escalation, adding the time 
distance and shielding component to our, our tactical solutions, those adversarial events. Um, but how we um, move our folks and uh, create density also uh, affects the adversary's ability to maneuver and uh, can enable us to maneuver. And I think it was markets that mentioned earlier, like we're trying to put ourselves in a position of advantage. And we also want to simultaneously put our adversary or the suspect in a position of disadvantage. Uh, and this, again, we do this all the time. If you think about, uh, you know, one of the first objectives uh, in a foot pursuit, if you lose sight of the suspect as they go in the, the yards, as you set up containment and that containment, uh, when it's effective, limits the suspect's ability to maneuver. Uh, eventually, you get them to hunker down and you coordinate a deliberate search and you locate and arrest your suspect. Uh, when we have, uh, you know, vehicle interdictions, whether it's a, a 10851 stolen vehicle um, or some other event where the suspect's mobile, uh, one of the things we want to do is get them boxed in and immobilized. We don't want them to be able to take off in that vehicle uh, while we maintain the ability to still uh, drive around. So it's a, another example of uh, how we use maneuver. Yeah, I think, uh, Chris, you bring up a great point because a lot of times uh, people don't have some kind of context for uh, the tax science model or the nine principles. They, We had that actually come up in the class today is that the, the officers learn it and they think it only applies to the suspect. Um, and you bring up a great point that uh, these these principles affect both parties, right? They're, they're equal opportunity employers for the officers and the suspect. And so I like that you talk about maneuver and that we we look about how we limit that with the suspect, right, to gain our advantage instead of just thinking um, of officers maneuvering. Uh, some examples that came to mind for us is um, just a general principle on critical incident response, which is a react team, right? Why do, why do we deploy react teams on critical incident response? Because uh, it gives us the flexibility and the mobility to react to whatever might come up in this, right? If it's a barricade, if it's a hostage situation, these teams, why we employ them is this gives me a flexible and mobile option to deal with anything unforeseen that might come up in this. Um, we learned the same thing after uh, large event security, after Route 91 shootings, um, NYPD is very good at deploying uh, their ESU team, mobile react teams, right? Because they understand the time and train issues with crowd, uh, with mass panic, with mass casualty incidents. So they create an element that's flexible and mobile to be able to respond to whatever might come up rather than focusing so much on fixed or stationary posts. Um, they understand this concept. And, and again, reiterating what Chris said, because that's a great point. Um, we're trying to do this to the suspect as well, right? We, we read about it and we talk about the advantage of it. So in turn, we want to exploit that advantage and we want to limit this principle for the suspect, right? To put him in at a disadvantage. Yeah, for all these principles, you want to think about it like a, a pendulum or a scale. And you want it to lean in our favor because if it's not in our favor, these principles are going to be present. And that means that they're in the, our adversary or the suspect's favor. So if we don't have containment, we don't limit our suspect's ability to maneuver, they're likely to escape and continue on whatever their criminal activity was. So um, that has to be one of our um, you know, objectives as we work through these and make sure that these principles are working in our favor. Yeah. And remember Fuller's point was that the nine principles are like the alphabet of conflict. They're like the language. So think about it like math. And if you were 
or if I were, I won't speak for you, you three, because one of you is really good at math. I'll let the listeners pick which one that might be, but I'm not that great at math because if I was, I could have made a lot more money doing math and in a lot less, uh, more safe situations. Right. But think about it like math, right? Math is a language and these principles are a language that you use on both sides of the coin. And the better you can speak the language, the better you can manipulate these things to your advantage. So that's, that's maneuver. The next principle This is the master or the controlling principle. It's the basis upon which all planning must necessarily stand. And that's the objective. So the first one was maneuver. The second is objective. Is the end to be attained through the employment of forces. Every operation must be directed toward a clearly defined, decisive, and attainable objective. So it's very interesting in law enforcement, how often do we really articulate what the objective is? Now, for just normal day-to-day operations, the objective is, you know, find the lost child or safely arrest the suspect, right? But this kind of speaks to end state. So end state is the definition of what success looks like. But there may be multiple objectives in order to achieve that end state. An example I often think about is wildfires. My uh, town suffered from wildfires about every other year for a while. And so the initial focus of effort is to save lives and evacuate. But once we're evacuating, then we pull security. That's a different objective. While we're pulling security, people are rebuilding the infrastructure, electricity, water, shelter. And then once that's ready, we repopulate. That's a second, that's a, that's a third objective, right? And also a very complex problem. So our job is to clearly define what success looks like. And it's, it's interesting because we imply that a lot in law enforcement, where we just kind of assume everyone's on the same page. We react, we self-deploy, and we handle the call, we get somebody in custody. But did anybody really ever tell us what the goal was? And some that's okay, unless it's a complex or novel event. Yeah, it's one of the leadership things uh, that you hear about, um, like in extreme ownership. Jocko's talking about uh, understanding the objective and purpose. I, I guess it's another way to define it. It's a little bit softer uh, for some folks. And you can't truly obtain uh, like decentralized command if the, the other supporting forces or you know the, the officers that work for you don't understand the purpose. Uh, we've had other guests on the podcast who have talked about this, but we're pretty good in law enforcement. We're majority of the time we solve problems in, in one or two officer or deputy teams. Uh, we can work autonomously pretty well. And occasionally there's events where you get two or three uh, or four of us together and we work cooperatively towards that common uh, goal without much communication. Uh, but we can't achieve or effectively uh, execute a coordinated response without knowing what that objective or purpose is for the operation. And that comes from, you know, the common operational picture and sharing situational awareness. If I'm missing something, Bobby, raise, raise your hand. Actually, I think you nailed it on the head with, with the example that you gave with wildfires. I was actually going to bring up an incident that we had uh, in Pasadena, about 13, Actually, maybe about 10 years ago, 
uh, where we had an extreme wind event and we had 13,000 trees go down in the city. Um, and that basically stops everything. Um, and just basic services, getting, getting that stuff back going, getting major, um, arteries through the city open, uh, things of that nature. That was a clearly defined objective. Hey, we need to get basic services back to, uh, back to normal, um, as quickly as possible. And the logistics of that is, is, is pretty crazy, but, uh, but yeah, it's looking at, at things that we don't normally do because our everyday operations, take a bad guy into custody, find, find a kid, like you said earlier, uh, those are things we deal with every day. So our objective is is kind of known to us already, even though our commander is going to hopefully clearly define that uh, when a critical incident happens. But when we talk about these other events, uh, we need to be prepared to to deal with those as well. 13,000 trees. Yeah, it was it was pretty it took them, uh, I think, three months to clear everything. Yeah, that's a public works nightmare, right? There. Yes. Yep. Wow. <laughs> So Sid goes on to talk about objective. Although it often appears that tactical objectives are readily apparent, they are frequently obscured by emotions, uncertainty, and vague commands. A commander must decide upon an acceptable resolution and direct the efforts of his forces to that end. The principle also reveals that every tactical operation carries an implied objective of imposing the will of the commander on the suspect. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on the word commander. It's whoever's in charge. If there's three deputies, then one of them's in charge. That's the implied will. So I want you to think about implied will as the adversary. The adversary for 90, I don't know, 95, 99% of operations is to get away and not go to jail. But sometimes that's not what it is. Inactive shooters, uh, aggressive folks that want to take the fight to us, a bunch of different things. So since the most effective and decisive way to pursue and attain an objective is through the seizure, retention, and exploitation of the initiative, offensive action is required in all tactical operations. Now, if you just listen to that, that's like not a big deal. You're like, nah, no problem. But I really want you to think about how poorly as a profession, we have educated the public on what we do and why we do it. So the hot topic is de-escalation, right? We need to de-escalate. We need to de-escalate. I'm not saying that we don't. As a matter of fact, my argument is everybody de-escalates in a variety of different ways. But think about this. You have to, at some point, take offensive action. So in emergency operations, we spend a lot of time reacting to the suspect. But the varsity move is at some point, we have to take the initiative. We have to take the offense to get the suspect to react to us. And we do that so that we can gain compliance and use the least amount of force possible to bring about the most peaceful resolution that we can. Now, Never forget that the suspect gets a vote. So at any time, the suspect can comply and we're all done. Everything else is us moving around people, manipulating terrain and time to place that person at a position of disadvantage so that we don't have to use uh, as much force, right? So 
Initiative is just the ability to carry through with your plan. That's all it is. So this is because whatever form offensive action takes, it is the only means by which a commander holds the initiative, maintains freedom of action, and imposes their will on the circumstances. Since offense is required to reach a conclusion, a commander who neglects this principle surrenders the initiative. Notwithstanding the importance of this tenet, it is one of the most misunderstood and neglected of all principles. Here's the point, and, and if you guys could jump in here, I appreciate it. Because uh, at some point, you cannot stand around and hope that the suspect complies. At some point, you have to inject yourself into their space. And that doesn't have to be violent. It just means you need to get them to stop thinking about their plan and start thinking about your plan. And that can be done in a variety of ways, but that's offense. So if we stand around somebody's house on a SWAT team or patrol team, and we say, hey, you're under arrest, you need to come out. And they come out, then great. We got compliance. We use the least amount of force possible. But if they don't, we need to, at some point, stop reacting to them because they have the initiative. And we need to make them react to us. And we might do that by something that may look aggressive. But the goal isn't to be aggressive. The goal is to gain, tain, and maintain the initiative. So we're going to do something to force you to start thinking about our plan so that we can gain compliance or at least use the least amount of force possible to gain that compliance or bring about the most peaceful resolution possible. But we don't have control over the suspects. He gets a vote. So initiative is really key. So if you're standing around and the suspect comes out, that's just luck. That person didn't want to fight. But if the person wants to fight, we're going to have to get them to start thinking about our plan so that we can ask them, identify ourselves as law enforcement, tell them what we need them to do, guarantee their safety if they surrender right now. Any thoughts on objective and initiative or some examples that kind of really demonstrate how important this is? Because I think we've done a poor job. And so in law enforcement in California and throughout the country, we talk about de-escalation all the time. And there's nothing wrong with de-escalation. I just think there's this verbal and physical ways that we de-escalate all the time. But we can't give up the initiative. We have to have the initiative. We have to get that person to think about why we're here and what we need them to do. Yeah, I, I think I think you're exactly right. I do think, however, we are we, what we're seeing is kind of the current times in law enforcement. We're seeing a lack of intent on some of our incident commanders to take an offensive because they're afraid of the outcome. So they would rather push off that decision as long as possible. Some until somebody else takes over uh, in, in some cases uh, where I've seen another incident commander come in and say, okay, we have to come to some resolution with this incident and standing here is not going to solve the problem. So here's how we're going to, in fact, solve the problem. So I think that's one of the things that, that we're, we're seeing. I think we can overcome it. Um, 
just by by better better leadership. But it's definitely becoming uh, an ongoing problem, and I just think it's a sign of of the current times that we're we're living in, and and the upbringing of some of our newer officers who are now promoting and, and becoming sergeants and lieutenants and incident commanders on these scenes, and are afraid to make that decision to uh, to take the offense. Yeah, I think uh, as far as objective goes, um, I mean that's the whole reason we're there, right? And that's got to be established. Chris brought up a, a great term that I love to use, um, common operational picture. And really that's what it does because when you respond to these incidents and you have your officers uh, with varying levels of experience, um, various levels of training, they're, they're looking at the problem through their own world, right? Through their own lens of what they can see, specifically what's in front of them, the limited information they know. Uh, as the incident commander, the tactical commander, the person in charge of this, you should have that balcony view and understand the ultimate objective. And when you voice that objective and you let everyone understand that, that brings everyone together in that common operational picture, which is a principle of combat that will breed success. Um, when it comes to offense, I, I think people understand this concept, but I think they limit their thinking of offense to like the ultimate offensive action, right? So if, if we're dealing with a barricaded subject, they're, they're limiting the scope of their thinking and offense to uh, deploying gas or making an entry or searching with a dog. Uh, initiative doesn't have to be a forceful action. What you're trying to do is get into your adversary's OODA loop, which means simply doing things that takes them off their plan and forces them to focus on what you're doing. And uh, Marcus asked for an example, and one that came to mind was uh, a barricade that my team was dealing with. And all we did was bring in a rook and we started towing vehicles and moving stuff around in the backyard with no ultimate tactical end game. But the entire time, the suspect standing out at his backslider, watching our tractor drive around, moving stuff right aimlessly. And now he's not fortifying his position. Now he's not scouting the front side of the location. Um, so don't don't just think of offense and maintaining maintaining initiative as simply a use of force or the, or the ultimate solution, which uh, you will have to do at some point, but do something. We're notorious in SWAT because we've gotten so wrapped up around de-escalation of checking the boxes on negotiations, um, waiting for search warrants. And I'm sure we're going to talk about time at some point, but whoever takes advantage of time is going to win. So instead of looking at that as checking the boxes, that time should be exploited to constantly have your adversary wondering what you're doing next, but you have to do something for him to wonder what you're doing next. If you're just standing there status quo, waiting to check boxes, um, he's now using time to his advantage. So don't just think of offense and an initiative of some heavy use of force or some ultimate solution. It, it's simply getting the suspect to react to you, whatever you're doing. And that doesn't, that doesn't have to be an entry or use of force. Two other quick examples. One of them that we share in class is a uh, domestic hostage situation. So, um, you know, father is holding wife and kids hostage. Uh, as the incident progresses, uh, officers see the kids in a in a window and uh, extract the kids from the house uh, through that bedroom window. 
Uh, there's no mother may I process, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, exchange. They seized on the window of opportunity, no pun intended with the windows there. And when they removed the kids from the environment, uh, that took away some of the leverage that the suspect had. And so uh, the negotiations were more effective at that point, and they were able to diminish the risk of the other people that were in the house. And that went to further the overall objective of that operation. Uh, another one, fairly common, there's not one specific example, uh, but we run into these uh, standoffs with people in public places that are often emotionally disturbed and, and armed with weapons. And when you can get a responding officer or deputy to flank or approach that uh, subject from behind and effectively deploy uh, less lethal, uh, sometimes with very little coordination, it's only because they understood what the objective was and they, they took the initiative uh, when that opportunity presented itself and they were able to um, end these events uh, with minimal injuries to the involved parties and ending the disruption that was uh, affecting the community at large. Yeah, to to speak to to Bobby's point, and I, I don't know if I'd go so far as say I'm an expert. There's a lot of people listening and they have a lot more experience than me. I mean, Bobby has 28 years of experience and he is super old. And, you know, I would never doubt that he has more experience than me. He works for a major city. He's super busy. And just the amount of gray hair that he has shows how much wisdom he must own somewhere. But all humor aside, all humor aside, all humor aside, we don't explain this. We don't explain this enough. And so we've allowed some of our detractors to make us think that we're aggressive, that it's bad. And it is bad if you don't understand why. But at some point to gain compliance, you have to take the initiative. You have to do something. You have to take the offense. And that's the point of the nine principles of war. And we keep using war and people don't like to use that term. So I, I totally understand it. But we're talking about an adversarial conflict. So law enforcement deals with people with unrestricted behavior. They're violating the rules of society and creating a situation that is dangerous for the community. And we, as law enforcement, have sworn an oath to protect the community. So we want to bring about the community back to some form of its former self before this event took over. And so we need to bring about peace. And we do that by responding, containing the event from getting bigger, isolating people that don't need to be involved so they don't get injured, and then bringing about the most peaceful resolution possible. But it's an adversarial conflict. And so these principles who've been around since Napoleon formalized them or Sun Tzu much prior to Napoleon, we can learn from them. So don't be put off by the fact that they're called the nine principles of war because we're talking about adversarial conflicts and we have thousands of years of data and doctrine to rely upon. So we've discussed maneuver. We've discussed objective. We've discussed offense, which is required to reach the conclusion, right? So we have to take and maintain the initiative if we're going to gain compliance or use the least amount of force possible. The next principle is simplicity. It's essential 
that a plan that cannot be understood cannot be implemented. And a quote here from Sid, direct, simple plans and clear, concise orders are essential to reduce the chances for misunderstanding and confusion. Since friction is inherent in all tactical operations, even the simplest plan can become difficult to execute. Consequently, plans that are readily understood and unencumbered with complications are more likely to succeed. It is important to note, however, that this principle will not compensate for ambiguous and cloudy objectives. In order to ensure simplicity, the ultimate goal must be precisely defined and clearly stated. Now, this seems like, oh, yeah, no kidding. It has to be simple. But coming from an agency that didn't have a hundred SWAT operations a year. You need reps. You need reps to kind of realize the friction points and reduce them. And you learn quickly that sitting in a room with a bunch of people making a plan, you can tabletop very complicated plans to execute. And you learn quickly through training for execution of the plan in real life, that if you don't keep it simple, you're not going to be able to get it done. And so uh, at Cato, we talk about, I want you to think about the most least intelligent person in your chain of command or on your team. And can they understand your plan? Because they're critical to you accomplishing the mission. So an example of a simple plan, do we make a 64-page ops plan or do we make a four-page ops plan, right? Because it doesn't matter how great your plan is. If nobody can remember it to execute it, then it's not a good plan. Because what do we know about plans? What's the axiom that, that I know everyone here on the podcast knows about planning? What's the great advantage to planning? It helps to unite the team for the common objective, pull everybody together. Yeah. But no plan survives first contact. So the purpose of planning is to develop contingencies, understand what's important and what's not, to maneuver, to gain an advantage. But in the end, the plan never is executed exactly how it is. So keep it nice and simple, develop parameters, and then move forward. Yeah, Eisenhower's quote is about uh, the value of planning versus the plan. And simply going through those processes, thinking about the what ifs, you know, envisioning the end state and how you're going to get there uh, generally provides more value than the actual plan itself. Yeah. So moving on to the next one, we have economy of force. Economy of force suggests that in the absence of unlimited resources, a commander must accept some risk in non-vital areas to enable him to achieve superiority at a decisive place in time. Since no commander has unlimited resources, The principle of economy of force is inherent in every tactical operation. Even when a commander has all the personnel and equipment that he can use, time will require a change of shifts in conservation of resources to allow the operation to be sustained. An astute commander will determine what assets are available and when and where they will be needed. He then distributes his forces accordingly. You do not want to use all your resources. That's People, fuel, bullets, beans, any resource you have available to solve this tactical problem before you need them. So you really need to kind of think about 
Am I maneuvering my people to gain an advantage? And if I'm not, I'm not subscribing to the economy of force. And and if Kenny's good with it, uh, talk about our current assignments right now. I think economy of force comes into play for us more than more than anything else. We find ourselves with limited resources, chasing really bad guys in places that we haven't ever worked before. So I think having that ability uh, to maneuver with the forces that we have and make sure that 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 our people know the the plan has to be simple for us because we're in an unknown environment and uh, the terrain is is not something that we're going to ex- expect that we really have to utilize that uh, to our advantage. Yeah, I agree with you, Bobby. 100% right. We have to do a little bit more uh, with less for, for a simplistic term. Additionally, this, uh, this comes down to me. And I, I think what would people would probably translate it to is prioritizing your objectives, right? We have our end state and then we probably have maybe some sub missions below that end state that we need to get done. And we don't have unlimited resources. We don't have unlimited personnel. So you have to prioritize those objectives, those end states, and you might have to give some stuff up. And that's a, that's hard for some tactical commanders, some incident commanders, because they think they need to cover it all. Right. Um, uh, an incident I have that I, that I usually talk about in SWAT commander and team leader is a, in a possible hostage situation. And, uh, and I have containment people. I have to pull those containment people for entry because my ultimate end state is to separate the hostage from the hostage taker. So while containment is a a basic tenet of police work, that is a subset to contain this problem. My end state, my ultimate end state is to separate the hostage from the hostage taker. And based on the resources I have, I have to give up that perimeter, that containment, right? For my economy of force to stack my entry team to be able to accomplish my ultimate end state. And so um, a good incident commander, a good tactical commander understands that they might have to give something up. And then that they have to prioritize those objectives in support of the end state. One of the other examples we give of economy of force uh, that most folks can relate to is with extreme weather or inclement weather. Uh, you, you don't put everybody out uh, when it's cold and wet or when it's extremely hot. You hold some folks in reserve so that they can uh, you know, be in position and ready to uh, move if there's a window of opportunity. And it seems to be something that uh, resonates with, with the students when we talk about this. Yeah. And it also implies that you know what the center of gravity is, right? So the center of gravity identifies which something the adversary needs to succeed and which if eliminated, diminished, or destroyed leads to failure. So your economy of force is, I want to focus on that because that is the biggest bang for my buck. And I can't get distracted by prol- prolifery, you know, things. So I can use up all my resources in the wrong area or in the wrong time. So the next objective, and it's reciprocal or complementary, is mass. Mass complements the economy of force. This principle requires a sufficient power is concentrated at a decisive time in place. Without economy of force, it will not be possible to mass. The, this usually happens when a lack of understanding obscures the ultimate objective, since prioritization becomes impossible. Proper application of mass may achieve decisive results, even for a numerically inferior force. And for those of you that study history, 
there are multiple examples where under-trained, under-equipped, under-manned people won over superior or what appear to be superior forces. For instance, a law enforcement commander who encounters a large group of suspects may deploy his forces in such a manner that the suspects must consider multiple threats from multiple directions. By massing his own forces at a time and place of his choosing, the law enforcement commander gains a substantial advantage when the suspects are slow or unable to react appropriately. A series of such maneuvers can deplete the forces of adversaries to the point where continued resistance is futile. In any tactical situation, there is a point at which a final decision must be made. That decision must be made by a single authority. This assures the coordination and control are focused toward attaining the objective, the principle of unity of command. So before we get into unity of command and how important that really is, let's go back and kind of talk about mass, right? So we have economy of force, not using up your resources until you need. And then you have mass, right? Where you attain, you you put all your power and resources in a moment in time, in a moment in place to get decisive, right? Decisive results. A couple of examples of math that uh, we also talk about or, you know, for our entry teams, our SWAT operations, uh, that stack at the breach point before you go, all your necessary uh, personnel are then at that location uh, for a timed entry. Uh, another broader example is like the NYPD Hercules teams. They roll those teams around uh, at a specific time and place uh, to accomplish their objective. It's a show of force. Um, we also have math in crowd control situations when we're trying to uh, restore order or uh, change the direction or behavior of um, those folks that are engaging in riotous behavior. We, we bring the resources at, in at a specific time to change their behavior. And I could and I could talk about my current agency. We have uh, several large events uh, throughout the year, and that economy uh, of force and the mass on where those folks are are placed to best suit those events and make sure they're protected as well as possible uh, really come into play. Th- these two obviously complement one another and and go hand in hand. So I think by utilizing the the uh, the mass properly and and in the economy of force, it presents itself well um, as long as it's used correctly. Yeah, and I want you to really think about how important this is. So I, I understood this like theoretically. But I didn't really get how important this really is to understand. So a really basic example would be if you're sitting around, standing around on an eight-hour SWAT call out, that hour 12 is not the time to be thinking about relief because now I've used up all my resources or depleted my ability to sustain operations. And and that's an issue for me, right? One of the advantages law enforcement has over a large percentage of adversaries is that we have the ability to communicate and sustain operations longer than they do. But that's not always the case. Historically, look at the Branch Davidians. Look at people that can barricade like Ruby Ridge. They can sustain operations for a long time. Look at recent history throughout America The ability to sustain operations is not just the ability to feed water and fuel your people. It could be politically. Look at the history of warfare since Vietnam. What do some of our adversaries around the world think? 
Well, if I can outweigh and outlast the American people who have a short attention span, they will pull out of my country and leave. So it's a much larger picture of mass and an economy of force, right? Think about, think about crowd control response. So if we have a riot and we use chemical agents on the crowd as a dispersal to take away terrain, but we don't take that terrain away, then over time, we will use more gas and more force to attain the same results. So when he says decisive, it cannot be understated. Don't use your equipment, your people, your force, your resources until you have a decisive place and time to use them. Think about it like a boxing match or a jujitsu match or an adversarial event like that, where it has nothing to do with law enforcement. If you are not decisive and precise with the amount of force you use, the boxing match or jujitsu match will last longer. And ultimately, you will use more force and sustain more injuries. But if you're decisive and you accumulate that force, so the most amount of force you can use on your opponent decisively, ultimately, it will be over quicker and you will use less force and use less resources. So this can really speak to incremental decision-making. So there's nothing wrong with incremental decision-making if it's done purposefully. So I want you to think about putting your toe in the water. I, I go to a beach in the ocean or a lake, it doesn't matter. And I slowly walk out there. I'm walking out there because I'm checking the cold and I'm checking the depth because we've all been to a beach or an ocean where you walk off the ledge and it goes from four feet deep to 15 feet deep and you fall in. So you're kind of feeling around because you can't see. That's good incremental decision-making because you have a goal in mind. But if you're just making incremental decisions because you're not sure what to do and you're not sure what's going to happen, you're going to use up your resources and your people with no real purpose except for to avoid risk. You have to take the initiative in order to, to get the suspect to react to you and gain compliance. So they're all kind of interwoven. And so when, to me, when he talks about that, it really speaks to me about, hey, if you're going to use force, and again, we're talking about two, two people or several people, right? This is a chess game. Use it on purpose, decisively, and quickly to end the event. Otherwise, you're going to ultimately use more resources and more force. Any thoughts on that? Do you guys think I'm out of line or does that make sense? I think you, uh, you, you, you nailed it. Um, all, all that stuff comes into play when we're talking about the end, the end state and, uh, the commander's intent and, and what the objective is. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG industries and Aardvark tactical NAG industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like vortex optics, Garmin Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, 
They also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Unity of command. So we, we, we read into that a little bit. It's a principle of unity command ensures that all efforts are focused on a common goal. Unity of command is achieved by in investing a single commander with the requisite authority to direct, coordinate, and control the actions of all forces employed in reaching the objective. In his Maxim of War, Napoleon wrote, quote, nothing is so important in war as an undivided command. So everyone has to have a clear operational picture of the problem, and everyone has to be committed to the plan. I really like the metaphor of rowing the boat. So we have a bunch of people rowing. Everyone has to be clear about the problem, be clear about the objective, be clear about the direction, and everyone has to row in the same rhythm and pattern. And if they don't, we're going to row in circles. Or even if we get there, it's going to be choppy and not smooth. And so it's very important as leaders, no matter what rank you are, that you clearly identify the end state, the objective, and that everyone's on the same page. That doesn't mean you don't get input. That doesn't mean that you don't ask subject matter experts for what you think they should, we should do. But in the end, one person has to be in charge. So in law enforcement, we call it the chain of command. And we have ranks and we have structures. It's very similarly modeled to law enforcement. But our culture is not the same. The labels are the same, but the execution is entirely different. And it's okay to sit around as a group of sergeants, lieutenants, corporals, or officers and get everyone's input. But at some point, one person has to be designated in charge and be responsible for the decision because we can't groupthink that responsibility. That's how we have unity of command. Thoughts on uh, that, fellas? Well, an example where we sort of lost unity of command, uh, and there were several of them across the country, was in the response to the George Floyd protest, where uh, there may not have been a clear direction. And, and several examples, definitely not unity of command, because you had uh, multiple units um, simultaneously maneuvering and responding to uh, protest actions that were um, not in support of or, or contrary to uh, the commander's intent. Basically, they're getting bad directions or, or no direction at all. So without that unity of command, uh, some of those elements committed their entire organization to a course of action that was unintended. Yeah. And this can be as simple as making sure everyone understands what we're doing and establishing the parameters, often called framing the operation, what I want to have happen, who I want to have it happen to, how we're going to do it, and what I don't want to have happen. Right. So everyone's very clear about what we're doing. So unity of command is not the same as unified command, although unified command helps with unity of command. So unified command is when we pair up with anybody else responding to this incident. So the majority of that time, it's fire, fire and medical. There's not much law enforcement does with an adversary that doesn't require medical intervention at some point. Even in even non-adversarial, mechanical, natural disasters when we're there, we have to unify that command. One of the problems we have in law enforcement during mass casualty events is that we do not have unified command that is co-located. 
We have to be standing next to each other. And hopefully this happens at the lowest possible rank, responding sergeant, corporal, whoever it is in charge with whoever it is at fire or medical EMS to start unifying our efforts. So unity command speaks to that, but unified command is making sure we're co-located. And whenever we don't, this breaks down. And when it breaks down, it can absolutely cost lives. So just something to consider. The last two are surprise and security. Now, surprise results from striking an adversary at an unexpected time or place or in an unanticipated manner. It is not necessary that a suspect be taken completely unaware, only that he becomes aware too late to react effectively. Surprise can decisively affect the outcome of a tactical operation. In fact, it is the key factor in the success of many drug raids and high-risk warrant services. Surprise is so powerful that it may allow success to be attained out of all proportion to the effort expended. So surprise is striking an adversary at an unexpected time or place or in an unanticipated manner. So that's not to discount the constraints and restraints, right? We're required to follow policy and the law and the constitution, but the human brain is inherently lazy. It seeks homeostasis. It seeks patterns that it's familiar with. And if you look at any adversarial event, such as sports, you will see surprise or the OODA loop bringing about wins to often what we refer to as underdogs. So do you guys have examples of striking at an unanticipated time or place or in an unanticipated manner? There'll be great examples of this principle. So yeah, Marcus, and personally in my, in my current assignment, um, that's honestly our, our number one tool. Uh, we're utilized in an undercover capacity until we're ready to, to take our our suspect into custody. And I can tell you countless times, um, just using various tactics, ruses, whatever's the flavor of the day, uh, based on um, you know, time and terrain, to see the eyes of the suspect uh when they are truly, truly surprised at at what just occurred and and realize that they are now being taken into custody before they actually have an opportunity to to react um, in in any way, shape, or form. So that uh, that's something that that I get to do on on almost a daily basis. And you you really get to see how surprise works in your favor if it's if it's utilized correctly. Yeah, along with uh, what Bobby said, and all these principles are present. They're all very important. Um, in my experience, they're in law enforcement. There is nothing more critical to success than applying this element properly. And uh, like Marcus talked about, we do have constraints and restraints um, by the law, things that we can do, things that we can't do, things that we are required to do. However, even on pre-planned operations, implementing and abiding by those constraints and restraints, if you properly understand this principle and apply it, um, even the committed adversary will be up against a losing battle. And so they're all very, very important. All these principles are huge for success in critical incident. 
However, surprise, whether you're talking about crowd control, dispersion, hostage rescue, fugitive apprehension, barricades, vehicle barricades, um, any situation that you're coming up in law enforcement against an adversary, if you understand the precepts of this principle and you apply it correctly, your chances of success um, bleeding over into officer safety stats increases dramatically. And so um, this one's very near and dear to my heart. Like Bobby said, for our current assignments, uh, this is what we live on, right? This is uh, how SWAT, how law enforcement go after the bad people in society and they go home at night because you properly apply this principle and you understand it. So the last principle that we want to talk about is security often considered the reciprocal of surprise. Without security, it is impossible to achieve surprise. Security denies an adversary of the ability to acquire an unexpected advantage. It encompasses everything a tactical force engages in plans must be kept secret. Movements guarded and equipment com command post and communications protected. Security enhances freedom of action by reducing friendly vulnerability to hostile acts, influence, or surprise. An example is February of 1993, during the raid by the federal authorities on the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, Texas. A KWTX cameraman accidentally alerted members of the cult. The violent and tragic aftermath serves as a poignant example of the importance of this principle. So security comes in twofold, right? We have to secure our plans. In other words, not tell our bad guys what the plans are. We also provide security for operations. This could be as simple as how do we keep people from injecting themselves into the command post? How do we keep people from broadcasting some of the movements we're doing before the bad guy sees it? How do we not live stream our activities? Very difficult in today's society where everyone has social media and Snapchat and posting and live streaming uh, things. And, and we've seen, especially when it comes to mass casualty people, they live stream uh, things that they're doing. Any other thoughts on security? Just the concept that, uh, you know, isolation and containment help contribute to security as well. Being able to uh, shrink the problem and uh, control the space so that we can utilize economy of force and, and mass uh, before we implement, you know, our, our tactics using surprise. Those, that all requires security. I can say it can even come down to our own, our own folks in law enforcement. Um, and, I, and I can give you a, a direct example recently where uh, we were chasing a double murder suspect who had been on the run for about six months. Uh, we finally get a, a, a good location, um, had, had put eyes on. So we have, a, we have a planned operation for early morning, and we notify uh, the agency of the city that we're in. God bless them because all they wanted to do was to help out. But in the grand scheme of things, we had probably 20 plus personnel there to, to take this into custody. And I had to field no less than six phone calls from our, our law enforcement partners in that, in that city, just wanting more information, wanting to come and help. And uh, it, it just kind of put a, a damper on the planning that we were trying to accomplish once we were, once we were set up and, and in place. So the security aspect of it um, on, on some of these operations can be critical and, and not that we're trying to keep our partners um, out of the loop, uh, but it can at some point be a hindrance because now we get into things such as self-deployment um, and we've seen how that's gone in the past. 
on uh, some major events and and how that can be uh, very dangerous for the outcome of the event. Yeah. And that's not to take away from deconfliction, right? Like we want to make sure people know what we're doing in their area of operation, but not everybody necessarily has to know because you get looky lose. And by looky lose, I don't mean members of the public. I mean, members of law enforcement, like, Oh, what cool things are these guys doing? They drive right through the middle of your undercover operation. So they can inject friction is what we're talking about. So operational security, intelligence security are all key. So I'm going to end uh, end it with this and then ask you each for your thoughts. A useful tool for remembering these principles is a mnemonic used by the military called Moosmus. Each of the letters identify a principle and keeps them mentally available for review. Because these nine principles have withstood the test of time and trial, a commander who appreciates their significance is much better able to understand latent factors inherent in all tactical operations. And then Stid ends the chapter with this quote. And remember, this book was written a little while ago, but I think it's even more applicable today than it was in the past. Never before in history has the criminal element been better armed or manifested more disregard for human life. At no time and in no other society has law enforcement community been subject to such scrutiny or criticism. An understanding of underlying tactical principles can only increase individual and organizational capacities for resolving these volatile situations. The commander who understands and applies these principles gains a substantial advantage over those who do not. The advantage over a relatively unskilled adversary should be self-evident. I think that's true today. I think it's more true today than it was when Sid wrote it. And ultimately, the better you can use these principles, the better you can apply them, the less resources and the less force you will have to use to bring about the most peaceful resolution possible. I, I, here, I'll end with something real quick. I, uh, I think it's it's the shortest chapter in the book. If, if I remember correctly, it's about four and a half pages. I think it's absolutely the most critical chapter in the book uh, because we use every one of these tenants every day uh, in, in our in our work uh, that, that we're doing on a daily basis. And I, I don't think we can discount the importance of, of that chapter and, and uh, what it, what it does for us if we actually follow, uh, follow those principles. Yeah. And these principles are fundamental laws of truth from which insight and understanding can be derived. They've been around for thousands of years. They're present in all the conflicts that we have. We need them all tilt in our favor uh, in order to have safe, successful resolutions. Yeah. I agree with what you guys said. It's, it's important to understand these because if you don't understand that these are present, that means that you're simply just applying tactics, right? That were either told to you or you're applying SOPs. And the, the problem with that is when you don't understand the principles behind your conflict and your adversary, you can't adapt to anything, right? You have, you have your toolbox of your tactics. And when your tactics don't fit the problem, you try and jam incorrect tactics into a solution that's just not there. When you understand the principles, when you understand these all exist and you understand that they exist for both parties, right? Both sides, good guys, bad guys, and you understand how to exploit them and take advantage of them, you can now adapt to any situation that you come across, right? You can now move your forces, you can move your people, your command, everything is geared towards your objective. And you can apply that to any situation, even those novel events that come across. Um, because you understand the principles behind the conflict that you're involved in. So, hey, that was one of the shorter chapters. There is 
huge bodies of works out there discussing the nine principles of war. And if you want to learn more, highly encourage you to read Field Command, which goes a little bit deeper into this. Obviously, uh, Fuller has written about this. Klauschwitz written about this. has been This has been around for a long time. Uh, I want to thank uh, Bobby, Chris, and Kenny for uh, joining me. I know it was a brief chapter, but I think it's important. I think it's important uh, to remember that this may not come naturally to you. This did not come naturally for me. And and it took a mentor in my life to really kind of push me to have the mental discipline to observe these uh, post-event. And after multiple, multiple reps of looking at this post-event, I was able to start seeing them in real time. And then seeing them enough to manipulate them to create those disparities where, where I use less resources and I use less people and I use less force to bring about you know, a, a resolution. And I keep saying that because I want you to remember that this is the art, right? The arts and the application of that science. And I know that a lot of people do these instinctively, but we need to be a little bit more purposeful in how we do it and how we explain it. Thank you, uh, gentlemen, uh, for uh, joining me. I know all of you personally, I know your commitment to your communities. I know your commitment to uh, your the serving the communities and, and bringing uh, about, you know, the most safe resolutions you can for some of the, you know, the most dangerous people that uh, prey upon our communities. And uh, for someone who doesn't do that job anymore, I just want to say thanks. I know you're a student of the profession. I know you've all read Sound Doctrine multiple times and uh, apply it every day. So thanks for joining us. If you uh, like the show or you have a comment, please share it with somebody. Please comment on the platform of your choice. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 